you got a Bible, open to Proverbs chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to be. As you get there, say a brief word uh, to our guests. If you're new with us in the room this morning, uh, you probably found one of these little cards on the seat where you're seated. Um, it's just a little connection card, just brief information about yourself, name, email, phone number. On the back side of that, there's a place to list prayer requests. If there's any way that our pastors, our staff, our elders can be in prayer with you or for you, we would love to do so. Um, you can fill one of these out. We promise um, not to call you at dinner time and try and have a, uh, an hour-long conversation while you're trying to enjoy time with your family. All we want to do is be able to follow up with you and answer any questions you might have about us as a church. Uh, we've been in a series uh, for the last several weeks called Worship and Wisdom. We've been looking at the Psalms and the Proverbs together, taking a look at um, the glory of God in the Psalms to kind of fan the flame of our hearts in gratitude toward God for all that He is and all that He does. We've also been looking at some of the Proverbs to see some of the practical wisdom as it fleshes itself out in our lives. And this morning we're in Proverbs chapter 3, and as we get started there, I want to remind you of what we said in the very first proverb we looked at in this series. We talked about what wisdom is. Wisdom is skillful living. It is competency in the realities of life. Wisdom is more than knowledge in the Old Testament. It encompasses not only believing something to be true or affirming something to be true, but actually living in light of it. We said a few weeks ago that you can have a lot of knowledge about a particular subject and still be very much a fool in the way that you conduct yourself with regards to it. And so wisdom is having that, that is growing in the competency to handle the realities of life. That's what wisdom is. And most of us think that wisdom, um, because of the age in which we live, we think that wisdom is like a door that you walk through. And it's kind of like the, and you have a key, or three keys, right? And you put them in the door and you turn the lock and you walk through, you take one step through the door of wisdom and you begin to live a wise life. But the way the Bible presents wisdom is wisdom is not so much a door as it is a path. You know the difference between the two? You can open a door and take one step through a door, but a path, you take multiple small steps down over the course of your life. And so if you're walking down a path, you're walking with one foot in front of the other, you continue to do the same thing. One um, author named Eugene Peterson has written a book entitled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I think he captures the essence of wisdom well in that title, that it's left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And eventually you look back and you see the choices, all the small micro habits that you've developed and all the small choices that you've made along the way leads you down a particular path. Wisdom is not just a big door that you walk through, it is a path that you follow. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, the Abolition of Man. He's one of the greatest philosophers, Christian philosophers of the 20th century. But as he writes about wisdom, I thought it was a very perceptive comment that he made in that book. He says this about wisdom as he con contrasts wisdom in the modern world with wisdom in the ancient world. He says this. He says, For the wise men of old, the ancient sages, the cardinal problem of human life, in other words, the main issue that we had to face was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. But for the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. Do you see what he's saying there? The difference between the two is he contrasts what wisdom was for the, the sages of old and what wisdom is in our culture today. He's saying pre previously wisdom was uh, the ability, the growing in the, in, in the competencies to handle the realities of life. 
And so you conformed your soul to the realities of life, not conform the realities of life to the desires of your soul. He said wisdom in the ancient world was the understanding that things weren't always going to work out the way that you thought they should and coming to terms with some of that and beginning to wrap your mind around conforming your, your desires to what life really was when you looked at the world as opposed to looking at what life really is and saying how can I make that out there fit this in here. He says in the modern world, that's what we want to do. We want to conform the realities of our life to the desires of our soul as opposed to conforming the, the desires of our soul to the realities of life. If you don't believe me, just go to Amazon.com right, and do a quick search for these two words, self-help. Right? You go to Amazon.com and you're going to find a whole host of books, more than you can read in your lifetime, more than likely. And they're going to be titled this, these, these ways. They're going to be like five ways to do this, four ways to do that, three ways to do the other. Okay? So you're going to have all these hosts of books with techniques. They're going to tell you how to conform your reality to your desires as opposed to how do you conform your desires to your reality. There's a big difference between the two. And wisdom, in the, in, for the sages of old, those who wrote the book of Proverbs were trying to help us to understand the former, not the latter. Not the latter. And so this morning as we turn our attention to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, we want to consider what it looks like to live wisely in light of what the sage says here. So I want to read it for you. If you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen. You can follow along there. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, the text begins, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let, my heart, let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the, uh, in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. One Puritan pastor by the name of Stephen Sharnock said this. As he observed the culture in which he lived, the Christians in that culture, the churches in that culture, and the people around him several hundred years ago, he said men may have atheistical hearts without atheistical heads. Their reason may defend the notion of a deity while their heart is often empty of affection to the deity. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's possible to have an atheistical heart but not an atheistical mind. In other words, your mind may defend the notion that God exists. You may believe that God exists but there may not be any love. There may not be any heat generated in your heart. There may not be any affection for God in your heart. And as he looked around the landscape of the church in his day, I think he could look around the landscape of the church in our day and say very much the same thing. There are many men who defend the notion of a God in their heads, but they have no love for God in their hearts. They may have atheistical hearts, but not but theistical minds. 
And one of the ways that you see that is by the way that they order their lives, by their priorities, by their commitments, by the things they give themselves to and for. There are many Christians who think, or people who think that they are faithful Christians when in actuality they live as functional atheists. They show up every Sunday morning and they give kind of lip service to the fact that there is a God who exists. We may sing a few songs about him. We may hear some words read from the scriptures about him. We may have somebody preach to us about those words. And then we go about the rest of our weeks as if God did not exist in our lives. We go about the rest of our weeks as if there is no really love or affection or heat or warmth in our hearts for him. You can have an atheistical heart and Believe intellectually that God exists if there's no love and affection for him. We can deny him with the profession of our lives, even though we may affirm him with the profession of our lips. Our practice may completely counter to our profession, oftentimes in our lives. And when that reality is true for us, the Bible calls us fools. It calls us fools. No matter how much you know, Wisdom is the ordering of your life consistent with what you know. And there's oftentimes where many of us say, yes, I believe that a God exists, but we don't order our lives as if he does. Let me ask you a question. What would your, how would your daily life look different if you lived as if you really believed that God is who he says he is in his word? What, what, what would that look like for you? I was faced with that reality this week in my own life. As I looked in the mirror as I'm reading this text, what would it look like for me to live as if I really believed that God existed? Didn't just say that I believed that he existed, but in my heart there was really a sense of an affection for him, a love for him, a pri- he was priority in my life. What would that begin to look like in the way that I conducted my affairs, in the way that I did business, in the way that I treated family, in the way that I engaged my neighbors, in the way that I treated other men and women who were image bearers of God regardless of race, creed, or color? What would my life look like if I lived as if I believed that God really does exist? If I moved from being a a, a functional atheist to a faithful, a faithful Christian. And at the the heart of that question, I think the author of Proverbs comes here to drive at us a little bit. And this text, when we first read it in Proverbs 3, it sounds almost like, like parts of it sound almost like a Hallmark greeting card, right? Or like uh, mydailychristianmeme.com, little things that you might see come across your social media feed, like trust in the Lord with all your heart, like really inspirational, right? But if we let it, if we let it, this text actually has teeth to it. It actually has teeth to it, but it also has wings. And I want to show us, I want us to see this morning both the teeth and the wings in this text to see what it looks like to move from being functional atheist to faithful Christians who have an affection for God growing and swelling in our hearts that helps us order the priorities of our lives. And so what's the first thing in this text that we look at to see that shift and move? What does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to order our lives, to conform the desires of our souls to the realities of our lives, to ultimate reality? Here's the first thing the author of Proverbs would say to us, is that we must begin to learn to live to show God to be your trust. You must learn to live to show God to be your trust. 
As opposed to just saying that he is your trust, you learn to live to show that he is your trust. It's one thing to say that we believe in God. It's another thing, quite another, to rely upon him, to depend on him, to throw all of our weight upon him, to trust in him. See, the word belief oftentimes in our culture is a very passive concept, but the word trust, trust is always an active concept for us. We can passively say that we believe something, right? If, you, if, if for instance, uh, uh, illustrated this way, you can, I can stand before you today and say that in my kitchen, uh, there is a, a little uh, a kind of a raised bar area, and at that bar, we have several little bar stools that are seated there for people to position themselves to eat breakfast in the morning, or when we have company over, there's some extra seating there next to the table. I can tell you that I have these bar stools in my kitchen, and you can go, conceptually, yes, I believe Passively, I believe that you have those bar stools in your kitchen. But if you come over to my house and you walk through the door and I say, you know what, the table is full, but have a seat at one of these bar stools. As soon as you pull the bar stool out and you rest your weight on it, there's something quite different there. That's an action that you're committing to show that you trust that that stool is actually going to support the weight of your body. (laughs) It's not going to buckle under pressure. Right? You can believe that those bar stools exist, but you don't trust them until you actually rest the weight of your life upon them and, and have a seat and enjoy some food. I hope you would enjoy it anyway if you came to my house. I'm not sure if you would. So <laughs> you got to learn, the author of Proverbs says, you got to learn to live to show God to be your trust, not just to affirm that you trust him and not just to generically say that you believe in him. To have a generic belief in God is not Christian. To rest the weight of your life upon him is. Right? So learn to live to show God to be your trust. He says, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Rely upon, depend on. And how does he say to do it? With all what? With all of your heart. With all of your heart. Now, the heart in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, is not just the seat of our emotions like most of us think that it is in the modern world but it actually encompassed everything internally, your mind, your will, your emotions, your affections, your priorities, your commitments. So he says, he doesn't just say trust in the Lord with your feelings. He says trust in the Lord with your thoughts, trust in the Lord with your desires, trust in the Lord with your actions, trust in the Lord with everything that makes you who you are. So you learn to think God's thoughts after him by trusting in the Lord with your mind. So you begin to think God's thoughts after him. You begin to show commitment and priority to the things that God has committed to and are priorities for him. You love the things that God loves. You begin to act on those things as God acts. When he says, rest the weight of your life upon God, trust in him with everything that makes you who you are, with all of your internal composition, is what he says. So the first thing for us, if we're going to learn to live wisely and conform the desires of our soul to ultimate reality, as opposed to trying to make our reality fit the desires of our soul, is we've got to learn to live to show God to be our trust, that our, the weight of our life is resting on him. And here's why. It moves us from, from just a, a general confession and belief about God to actually demonstrating that God is our trust because your true trust, my true trust, it always comes to the surface. Your true trust will always come to the surface without exclusion. It's, it's one thing to say that I trust God. It's another thing to show that you trust God. 
in the way that you order your life. Because see, your true trust will always come up to the surface. Whatever is boiling beneath the surface in the soul will always rise up. You know how islands get formed? Many islands in the, in like in the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, how they get formed over the course of and spans of year after year after year after year. Many times there's volcanic activity that's taking place down beneath the surface in subterranean regions under the earth, under the crust of the floor of the ocean. There's volcanic activity. And over time, there's molten hot magma that begins to flow up into lava as it boils out onto the ocean floor. And year after year after year after year after year, as that, as, that, as, that, as that magma pushes its way to the surface and settles and cools, it grows slowly and builds. And it builds and it builds and it builds until eventually, right, no matter how deep the ocean is, eventually there's, a, there's, there's land that begins to emerge above the surface. It begins to emerge above the surface because whatever's boiling down beneath eventually comes up. And eventually is seen by all the world. And so the islands that people live on, many of them in the Pacific Ocean, have been formed that way. And one of the things this text teaches us, when he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then down in verse 6 he says, I think verse 6 is a commentary on that part in verse 5 where he says, acknowledge him in all your ways. Acknowledge him in all your ways. See, as you begin to acknowledge God in everything that you do externally, as you begin to live as if he really does exist, then there's this bubbling up and there become islands of trust and obedience in our lives that get formed in the ocean of our realities. And so there's islands that get formed where we're trusting God and showing that to be true and it becomes visible. It's not just this thing that's boiling down below because whatever's boiling down below will come up above. Whatever is burning in your soul will eventually come to the surface. See, your true trust is always acknowledged by your ways. And for some of us, we don't show God to be our trust because he's not. We trust in our career, our vocation. We trust in our relationships. We trust in our finances. We trust in our lifestyles. Our true trust down below always comes to the surface and it always gets shown to the world. It's always acknowledged in our ways. We always, the, the, the word that he uses there to acknowledge literally means this, to recognize and respond to. To recognize and respond to. So we're always recognizing and responding to our true trust. It's always coming up. And so there might be islands of trust around your vocation in your life or islands of trust around your spouse or your singleness or your experiences or your, your finances. There might be islands of trust that continue to emerge in the oceans of your life in these areas because what's at the bottom always comes to the top. Always. And the author of the Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with everything that you are by acknowledging him in everything that you do. By living as if he's really real, by recognizing the reality of his existence and responding to it in the way that you carry yourself, the way that you order your life, the way that you respond to the realities that exist around you. It might mean for some of us in this morning that we recognize and respond to God's existence in our marriages. Maybe there's somebody in the room this morning that God has brought you here because you're being propositioned right now for an extramarital affair. 
And the question for you, the question for you is, will you recognize and respond to the reality of God in your life? Will you trust him with all your heart? Maybe some of you in the room, you need to recognize and respond to the reality of God whenever you file your paperwork for your taxes next year. With all honesty and transparency. It may mean that you look in the eyes of a person in need and instead of closing your heart toward them, you recognize and respond to the reality and existence of God, trusting in him with all your heart. Acknowledging him in the way that you treat the least and the last and the lost and the lonely. In the way that you address injustices that take place around you. Are you trusting and leaning the weight of your life upon the Lord in those instances? It may mean that there's a, when there's a conflict in your relationships that you recognize and respond to the reality of God. It may mean that in the discipline of your children, you recognize and respond to the reality of God in your life in the way that you, you show both grace and truth, in the way that you've been shown grace and truth to them. We have to learn to live to show God to be our trust and your true trust, whatever's down here in the heart will always come to the surface and there will be islands of trust in your life. The question is, who's occupying those islands? It's wisdom. It's wisdom. The next thing this pro- the author of the proverb tells us is this. He says, you have to learn not only to show God to be your trust, but you have to begin to sever your reliance on your own wisdom. So if you're going to rest the weight of your life upon God, this great covenant Lord who's shown you faithfulness, if you're going to rest the weight of your life upon him, then you can no longer rest the weight of your life upon your own understanding, upon your own wisdom, being wise in your own eyes, thinking, man, I've got this thing figured out. I've got life figured out. If everybody would just come and talk to me, I could let them know everything that they need to do because mine is just working so fluid and it's working so perfect. See, if you're going to shift the weight, if I'm going to stand on stage right here and shift the weight from my left leg to my right leg, then I'm no longer resting the weight of my life upon my left, but of my body upon my left, but upon my right. And I can only stand like this for so long without losing my balance. But listen, here's the reality. If you're going to learn to rest the weight of your life and trust the Lord with all of your heart, then you've got to shift the weight off of your own understanding. In fact, the word that he uses there in the text when he says, lean not on your own understanding, Literally means to rest, the, rest your weight on like your own intellect, your own aptitude, your own skills, your own abilities. So you gotta shift your weight and sever your reliance upon your own wisdom. See, there are some things for some of us in the room that the Bible is so crystal clear on. Listen, there's lots of life that the Bible doesn't give you a black and white answer for. That's a lot of where wisdom comes into play, to know how to navigate some of those scenarios. And that's why it's like slowly an island building in your life. Slowly, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Not a door, but a path. But there are some things that the Bible is crystal clear on about what is wise. As I said a couple of weeks ago, there's so many of us who are just kind of walking down the street and the rest of the other parts of the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman who stands on the street corner who is crying out to us, saying, would you turn aside and just listen for a moment? Right, but we've got our earbuds in and we've got the volume cranked up to the max and we're just kind of cruising along the sidewalk. I didn't even hear anything, man. There's some things that are so crystal clear 
And oftentimes it's just we begin to take steps and put left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot in those areas that are crystal clear in the Bible, the things that are revealed to us. It's, it's some, some of those other areas that are, there's not a, a, a clear-cut black and white guideline in the Bible for what job you should take or what house you should buy or those kinds of things. Some of those things kind of begin to get clarity around those as you walk in the path of wisdom. Trusting in God, resting the weight of your life upon him, shifting it off of your own understanding. In fact, some of us this morning, either in this room or with an earshot of my voice, one of the reasons your life is crumbling right now is because the weight, of the, 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 the support of your own wisdom and intellect and aptitude and abilities is finally beginning to give way. Right, the termites have finally eaten through what you thought to be a solid, sure piece of wood that you are resting the weight of your life on. He says, lean not on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't try and figure everything out for yourself. But where the Bible is crystal clear, then you bring yourself in alignment to it. And where things get a little bit muddy, then you continue to put left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, and continue to seek wisdom. Trusting in the Lord. Now, lots of that is abstract. I want to get real concrete for the rest of our time together this morning. Because I think the author of the proverb gets real concrete for us. Gets real concrete. Right? He, he gives us some teeth to this a little bit. Right? That whatever, whatever, you got to learn to show God to be your trust. You gotta, because your true trust always rises to the surface. It's always going to be evident to the world that's around you. And you got to shift the weight of your life off of your own understanding onto resting in the Lord. But what does that begin to look like? How does that begin to flesh itself out? And the author of the proverb gives us a test for whether or not we're trusting in the Lord with all of our heart and not leaning on our, leaning on our own understanding. He gives us a test, and here's what it is. It's in how you view and use money. I, it just got real uncomfortable in here for many of us. <laughs> how you view and use money. I want you to look at verse 9. He comes right out of this context of talking about trusting in the Lord with all of your heart, leaning not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledging him. He will make straight your paths. Being not wise in your own eyes, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil, so that it might be healing to your bones and refreshment to your, to, to your flesh. And then in verse 9, he comes to say, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your labor. Now, as I thought about it over the course of these last couple of weeks, as I was thinking through this text, I was thinking through, what's, what's the, where's the, the, the there's, there's a connection here. The, the, the authors of scripture don't just kind of hodgepodge, throw things together, right? There's a, oftentimes there's a natural outworking as you move through the text of their train of thought, as they're writing these words down, as God's inspiring it. So what's the connection here between verse five and verse nine? In verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse nine, honor the Lord with your wealth. What's the connection between those two? As I thought about it across the rest of the grain of scripture, there's, there's this un undeniable context in all the Bible from the Old Testament to the New that indicates this reality. That where your trust is, your treasure will follow. That where your trust is, your treasure will follow. 
Whatever it is that you're resting the weight of your life upon is what you're going to leverage the resources in your life for. Where your trust is, your treasure will follow. It's undeniable on the pages of Scripture. This is why in this very context, as he talks about trusting in the Lord with all your heart, God says, honor the Lord with your wealth. What you do with your treasure shows what you're trusting with your heart. So where your trust is, your treasure will follow. Let's talk about that practically. This is what this looks like. If if you trust in the orchestration of certain experiences for your children, then your treasure will follow. Right? Some of you go, man, I didn't have a very good upbringing as a child. I didn't have lots of experiences or opportunities. Right? And so if, if you're trusting, right, if you're resting the weight upon, of your life upon the outcome of your parenting and your children's experiences and the opportunities they have available to them, and you're resting the weight of your life upon that, if you trust in the orchestration of certain experiences and opportunities for them, your treasure will follow and you will break, break the bank trying to ensure your kids have the opportunities and experiences you didn't. So you will sign them up for every extracurricular activity possible and you will pay for every uniform and you will pay for every trip and you will pay for, you will break the bank to ensure that they have the opportunities that you didn't. See, if if your trust is the maintenance of a particular lifestyle, then your treasure will follow and you will redline your resources to shop at certain stores with certain brand names You will redline your resources to eat in certain restaurants, to drive certain vehicles, live in certain neighborhoods, take certain vacations, enjoy certain experiences, buy certain toys. You still have toys. So do I. (laughs) But if you're trusting in a particular lifestyle, a maintenance particular lifestyle, you will redline your resources to attain and keep living at that level of comfort. If you trust in a secure retirement that when you hit 67, man, you're just hanging everything up and you're just gonna live the rest of your life on a beach somewhere, sipping on little drinks with umbrellas in them under the palm trees in a hammock. Right? If your trust is a secure retirement, Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, we can enlarge our savings and build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will never have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover at the end that we have nothing and are in God's eyes fools. Why? Because we lived as if this was all there was. Opportunities and experiences for my kids, a maintenance of a particular lifestyle for myself, security whenever I hit 67. Where your trust is, your treasure will follow. And so you will build large accounts for yourself. Build large accounts for yourself. But just as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, one of the prime indicators and prime tests of whether or not you're trusting in the Lord with all of your heart is how you view and use money. You cannot love them both. You will love one or the other. And for those who choose to trust in God with all of their hearts, and lean not on their own understanding, because there's lots of wisdom in the world, lots of techniques and seminars you can go to, 
right, on how to save for retirement and how to plan for this and how to give your kids these opportunities and how to maintain this lifestyle, right? Lots of, lots of pyramid schemes you can get involved in where you climb to the top of that thing and everybody's like paying you and you're doing nothing but sitting on the, on the beach all day, right? There's all kinds of seminars and schemes and techniques and technology that you can use to try and better your life, right? Conform your desires to, uh, conform your reality to your desires as opposed to conforming your desires to the reality in which you live. That has huge implications for some of us in the room this morning who are in massive debt right now. Because we've been trying to conform our reality to our desires as opposed to conforming our desires to our reality. And saying no to certain things. And feeling like we have to have certain things and so we open up a new account, max out a new credit card. Because we're trying to conform our reality to our desires rather than conform our desires to our reality. But for those who would take God at his word and live as if, he is re- as if he really exists and he really is who he says he is, the author of Proverbs makes a promise to us. He says, for those who would honor the Lord with their wealth, he says, their barns will be filled with plenty and their vats will be overflowing with wine. Overflowing with wine. Now, <laughs> There's a promise there for those individuals. New wine, in fact, the Hebrew says. In other words, new crops coming in from the field. A multiplication of the harvest is going to come in. Now, some of us in the room just had a little shouting moment in our heart, right? You don't have a shouting moment out loud because you guys kind of just look a little lethargic. But in your heart, you're like, yes. And some of you just got real uncomfortable when you see that kind of language in Scripture. And here's why. Because we would approach it in one of two ways. Either... We turn it into prosperity theology that says, if you give to God or you give to my ministry, God is going to open up the storehouses of heaven and he's going to barrel out all these blessings on you for you. You're going to get to drive that new car you've always wanted. You're going to get to live in that new house you've always wanted to build. You're going to get to buy that land that you've been looking at for years. You're going to get to, um, you know, your promotions and raises and all the, all the, 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 the drippings of heaven when God squeezes is going to come out and run over into your life. And you're going to enjoy those things forever. There are some who turn that language into prosperity theology. And then there are some who look at it and they blush. And they try to ignore it. And they go, man, I really hope, I hope they didn't see that in there. Because <laughs> that means I'd have to talk about it. And it sounds so much like prosperity theology and the distortion and twisting of that in our day and time. But there's a third alternative is that we can embrace it fully. And take God at his word. Because the third alternative to this is not to blush at it or ignore it. And it's not to turn it into prosperity theology. The third alternative is this. Is that where God finds an open funnel, he pours more to distribute. He pours more to distribute. You see, the reality is that not that if you give to God, he's going to give back to you for you for your enjoyment, for the betterment of your lifestyle so that you can build a bigger house and drive a newer car. But the reality is whenever we honor God with our wealth and he finds an open funnel, he pours more into that funnel because he knows there's not a clog in it and it's gonna be channeled out to the neighborhoods and communities. He pours more in for his glory and the good of the city in which you live, the good of the community in which you live, the good of the nation and the world in which you live. And so we can take God at his promise and not turn into prosperity theology and not shy away from it, but just say where God finds an open funnel, he keeps pouring. He keeps pouring. 
And he says, the honor of the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your labor. First fruits comes out of Exodus and Deuteronomy, a couple of texts there talked about taking the first and best part of the harvest and bringing it to God in recognition that everything that you took from the field and from, from the trees belonged to him. That he gave it and it's his. But so oftentimes, you and I, we don't give the first fruits, we give the leftovers. We get the leftovers. Let's just be real honest. Let's, right? We get the leftovers. We say, after I pay off the two new cars that I'm driving, then, then I'll begin to honor God with my wealth. After I pay off the credit card that I just maxed out, then I'll honor God with my wealth. After I buy the land, build the house, get the next raise, the next promotion, the next job. Or some of you students in the room, like after I get a real job, <laughs> then I'll begin to give. Then I'll begin to honor God with my wealth. But listen, let me just, let me just tell you. You may, you may be like, man, I work a job right now and I make 400 bucks a month, right? When I get a real job and I'm making like 40 grand, then I'll begin to give. And listen, I wanna say this as gently and as humbly as I possibly can, but in my experience, no, you won't. Why? Because wisdom is not a door that you walk through, but it's a path that you walk down. And so if you're, if you're not writing a check right now for 40 bucks a month, Right, whenever, you, whenever you're making 48 grand in 10 years, it's gonna be a lot harder to write that $400 check. And so are you beginning to take steps down that path even now? And you go, it's so little. That's not the issue. The point is, where's your heart? Are you showing God to be your trust with what you do with your resources? Adults, same, same is true for you. We think after, after I pay for my kids over the top birthday party and all their activities, then I'll give. Right? With the leftovers after my hunting lease or my boat or my camper or my Yeti coolers and cups or after I stockpile my arsenal and tackle box, after I buy the new four-wheeler, right? after the new clothes and new shoes, after I decorate the house or the new flat screen that I want to buy or after, after I, this, this will get me in trouble, after I budget for the salon every month, right? After that, then I'll begin to honor God with my wealth. Right? Because we, we, we're so ingrained to think about giving God our leftovers as opposed to our first fruits. But I want to ask you a question this morning. And we're almost done, I promise. I want to ask you a question this morning. What, what might happen if there were a community of people who took God at his word and rested the weight of their life on him as opposed to leaning them, propping themselves up on their own understanding and going, after all of this, then I'll begin to honor God with my wealth. What might, what might that look like? What might God do through a, a church, a community of people who'd be willing to say yes to God and no to some other things that they might have made their trust over the course of their lives? A couple of things I thought of over the course of this last week. Um, several of them actually that I thought of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run down a list of them for you. First of all, what might happen is some of the storage facilities that keep being built around here in all kinds of places, they might end up closing right? because they can't find enough business anymore because God's people would take God at his word and they would begin to give stuff away and be generous and open-handed with things that they, they possess to such a degree that they don't have need to rent out a $200 a month locker to store it all in. Because they're so open-handed. There might be like riots going on in the city, kind of like Paul in the city of Ephesus. Whenever the gospel came in, the trust in God as their savior began to come in and undercut all the idolatry. And the silversmiths couldn't have enough work anymore because they'd been building all these little idols for the temple of Artemis in Acts chapter 18. 
And so there's a riot that breaks out. What, happened if, what, what would happen? What would happen if we began to honor God with our wealth and some of these storage facilities began to shut down? If you own one, I'm sorry. But what if it, happened, if it began to shut down? That might happen. What if elective cosmetic surgery is not resulting from accident, disease, or birth defects experienced a sharp decline because we were honoring God with our wealth and he was our trust, not our body image? What would happen if people built smaller and more modest homes rather than the larger and more luxurious homes because our trust wasn't a status from the car that we drive or the home that we live in, but our trust, the weight of our life was rested upon the Lord? It might look like being content with a handful of firearms or fishing poles. or shoes, or dresses. It might look like giving a reliable vehicle to a family in need instead of trying to get top dollar for it as a trade or a sale in the private market. It might look like investing capital gains if you're a business owner back into your business rather than taking them as a bonus in order to create more jobs for people who are in need or giving those things away to nonprofits who are seeking to care for the widows and orphans in our community. It might look like a wartime lifestyle where we begin to ration and pool resources to accomplish what God has called us to do. It might look like the outpouring of money, the outpouring of resources for ministry, mission, and mercy here in our community and around the world. What might it look like if we said, I'm going all in. I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I'm not going to lean on the counsel of this culture with regards to money. But the way that I view and use it is going to be shaped by the fact that I believe that God exists and that he is who he says he is. What might it look like if we began to honor God with our wealth? In one of the wealthiest counties in all the nation. I'll tell you this. I get chills just thinking about it. I hope you do too. I'm going to close with this. Some of you are here this morning and you're like, man, that all sounds good. I'm just not there yet. <laughs> I'm just not there yet. And here's what I want to say to you. I want to, I want to, I want to make, have a little bit of transparency and confession that for a very, 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 very long time, I wasn't there either. And there are still days right now that I wake up in the morning, I look myself in the mirror and I go, man, it would be nice to have But I know to have for us right now would be to take away from honoring God with our wealth. And so there are times I just have to say no to some things to say yes to others. And so you go, man, I'm just not there yet. Listen, I want to say God was so gracious to me for so many years of my life. As I continue to find myself by homes that I would live in or vehicles that I would drive or possessions that I would own so gracious to me and patient with me. And so you're like, man, I don't know if Redeemer's the place for me if they're gonna be like talking about honoring God with our money and stuff like that. But you know what? I've got two kids. We didn't teach either of them to swim whenever they were infants by throwing them into the deep end without a life raft. And so here's what I would be honored to do. I'd be honored as your pastor to walk alongside of you. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, 
left foot, right foot. Not through a big massive door, but just keep putting one foot in front of the other as you think about what it means to have work, work out wisdom in your life in regards to how you use your money and show God to be your trust. And the last thing I'll say to you about that is this. Is that some of you are here this morning, maybe, you, maybe you're not even a Christian, and you're, just trying, you're wrestling with some of this stuff. You're like, so what it sounds like to me is that I get to buy God by giving him all my money, and then he approves of me. And I want to say you can't be further from the truth. You can't be further from the truth, and here's why. Because your generosity is not a prerequisite for God's grace, but it's proof that you've tasted of it and that you're trusting in him. You honoring God with your wealth isn't a prerequisite for it, but proof of it. Even in this very text, if you go back up into verse three, the author of the Proverbs says, listen, my son, don't forget my teaching. What you need to do, he says you need to take steadfast love and faithfulness and bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And those words, steadfast love and faithfulness, they show up all throughout the Old Testament in covenant language to speak of God's unfailing, turbocharged love for his people. So the author of this proverb isn't saying, you need to be steadfastly loyal and loving toward God and others and then do all these other things. He's saying, God, you need to remember, you need to pound into your heart day after day, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, pound into your heart that God has been faithful to you. That his steadfast love has been demonstrated to you. You need to look at texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where the apostle Paul says that God has bankrupted the heavens so that you might know him. That he, Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that you who were poor might be rich in him. That you might know him. And the power of his resurrection, as he says elsewhere, and the fellowship of his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, and attaining the resurrection from the dead, that you might know God. God has leveraged all the resources of heaven on your behalf for his glory and your good. So it's not, I write a check and buy God off and then he approves me. It's that God has moved toward me in his love and his faithfulness. He's shown his undying, turbocharged, unconditional commitment, love, and loyalty to me through the person and work of his son as he bankrupted the heavens so that you might know him. It's not a prerequisite for his grace. You notice in the order, verse three comes before verse nine. You gotta pound into your head and heart the steadfast and loyal love of God so that you take your weight off of your own understanding and you rest it on him and you show the world that he is your trust, church, by how you view and use money. Some of you need to begin to take baby steps this morning to move in that direction. And I would love to pray with you and talk with you about what that looks like. David's gonna come, he's gonna lead us in one final song as we close, as we lift our hearts and minds to think about not only the fact that God is, is worthy of our trust, but that we would live to show that he is. So as the band comes, I wanna pray for us. 
I want to pray for us this morning. Father, today, as we reflect upon your great love and loyalty to us in your Son, who was rich but for our sakes became poor so that in him we might become rich, not as those who would bankroll in this life, but Father, as those who would be an open funnel because we've tasted of your grace. And we would know the riches of knowing you and the riches of enjoying you. We would know the riches of your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness to us. And so that we would put one foot in front of the other and begin to live as wise people who show the world that you are indeed better. You are better than any opportunity or experience that we could manufacture for our children. That you're better than any lifestyle that we could seek to maintain. That you are better. You are better than any retirement that we can look forward to enjoying. As we reflect upon your steadfast love and faithfulness, may you free our hearts to shift our weight to trust in you. And might there be a raising up of a church and a people who live as if you exist by conforming the desires of their soul to ultimate reality as opposed to the other direction we pray in Jesus' name.